Hello, and welcome back to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast from Sosaliol in San Diego, California. We just had a great time collaborating with the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, producing a showcase of true stories that our writers created in response to the museum's phenomenal Cecilia Alvarez Munoz retrospective exhibit going on right now, Breaking the Binding. It was so good, in fact, we wanted to turn it around and put it out so that everybody who couldn't make it there in person would have a listen. And it's doubly cool if you have seen the retrospective or are familiar with Cecilia's art, but the stories also stand on their own. And so we're just gonna run the whole show for you right now, uninterrupted. Enjoy. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. My name is Carla. I am the Director of Education and Engagement here. Um, first and foremost, I would like to say a special thanks to my colleague Marina, who's over in the back, and Leslie. Um, they both helped organize this event, so round of applause to them. Um, so this is part of our summer series, which is a series in which um, we invite different people and organizations to reflect on our current exhibitions. Um, as you may or may not know, every Thursday from Memorial Day until Labor Day, um, we are open for extended hours. So we are open until eight, and every third Thursday of the month, we are free. Um, you will see different activations happening during these Thursdays, so please keep an eye out and check out our website to see what's going on. I am so excited about tonight's um, event, and um, to formally introduce it, I will um, invite Jennifer to come up and share some words. Thank you all. Hi, hi everybody, welcome. My name is Jennifer Corley. I am the program director for So Say We All, and thank you so much for coming out tonight. We are really excited to present this program. And um, if you don't know So Say We All, we are San Diego nonprofit, a storytelling and performing arts and literary, <laughs> literary and storytelling arts nonprofit. Um, our mission is to help people tell their stories and tell them better. And so that's what you will see tonight are various forms of storytelling. You're gonna see stories, you're gonna see poetry, you're gonna see prose poetry, and all of these works were inspired by or their responses to the works of Celia Alvarez Munoz's works, which I hope you all have gotten to check out. Um, now, I just wanna tell you a little bit about the process of these works that you're gonna see tonight. What happened was we had people submit their uh, pieces of work and they go through what we like to call a little MFA boot camp. Uh, you have about a month with us at So Say We All where each person gets assigned a mentor and that's someone who works with their written piece and kind of like an editor and they give them feedback on their written piece. They also have critique sessions where everyone who's in the show as a group helps each other and gives feedback. And then they, their mentor also works with them as a performance coach to help get them ready to tell their story, to tell their piece up here at the stage. So it's a lot of work. Um, these people that you're gonna see, they put a lot of effort into their pieces which already have a lot of vulnerability um, put into them. So. We all appreciate you coming out here and supporting us and supporting these writers. 
Um, one thing I want to make sure to stress to you is that even though we are in a museum, this is not a museum exhibition that you're seeing tonight. This is a conversation. So what you hear, we encourage you to react to it. It's, it's fine to laugh. You have our permission to respond to things. You know, it's kind of, uh, so say we all is kind of like a church. <laughs> so if you hear something that you really agree with, you can feel free to say, mm, yes. <laughs> you can laugh. You, you can say, you know, oh, I heard that. You can say whatever you need to say to express your agreement, your disagreement, your appreciation. That's what we're here for. Uh, and that's what the bar is here for also. <laughs> So, yes, if you haven't seen the bar, it's outside, have a drink, bring it on back in. Um, but yes, we encourage lively, energetic participation with these storytellers. I don't mean heckling, of course, but have the conversation that they are having with you. Um, energy is a circle, it's a cycle. So feed them the way that they're feeding you, please. Um, this, the uh, performers that you're going to hear tonight, I'm not going to be introducing each one. We just like to have a flow, so I'm just going to go ahead and tell you their names right now. We're going to have David Zafra, Deborah Bass, Amy Wallen, Jonathan Grinstein, Frank DiPalermo, Jay Carroll, and Taylor No. In that order. And, uh, and I'll come back up and remind you of their names afterwards. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with David Zafra. Right here. Uh, my mom always functioned using her own logic, and it usually baffled my siblings and I. She did a lot of weird things, but the strangest thing that she used to do is when I was a kid, I was tasked to cut the grass in the yard with a knife. <laughs> My mom was born in Mexico in 1960. She was one of seven children, and her siblings gave her the nickname Borona, which means crumb in Spanish. She was small and got bullied a lot by people in her small town. Her siblings were more willing to get confrontational if they felt disrespected, but my mom stayed passive. In Mexico, she only made it to the fourth grade and went immediately into working. One of her first jobs was working with guitars in a small factory. She was 11 years old. Her hometown of Paracho, Michoacan was well known for their guitars, but she never learned how to play them, nor did she have the desire to. Instead, we were told stories about the assembly process. My mom, I would stare at her hands whenever she told me the process of using sandpaper to smooth out the body of a guitar, gently rubbing her hands in demonstration. Her hands were not dainty at all. Sometimes I looked at her hands and was surprised by the small woman they were attached to. They told the story of how she had worked in factories and hard labor her whole life. I couldn't imagine what it would feel like to be touched by those hands as delicately as she touched those guitars. She's not that type of parent. As the son of an immigrant, I learned that my family showed love in a very different way. One way that she did that was to have an open door policy for our family to come and stay with us if they ever needed. 
Growing up, I lived in a rotating cast of cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents who slept in the living room, kitchen, backyard, storage closet, anywhere that you could find a place. All of this in a two-bedroom rental that I lived in with my parents and four siblings. Space in our home was limited, but this did not prevent my mom from adding to the clutter. She spent her free time going to the thrift stores and garage sales so she could buy stuff to sell later. She kept boxes in the yard, the side of the house, all of our closets, and even her van was full of things that she would sell on the weekends. Ironically, even though my mom was a bit of a hoarder, she hated that we had so much stuff. She felt like if we had less things, it would be easier to manage. Using her logic, she decided the best way of dealing with all the clutter was to sell our dishware or to hide our socks. Less things meant less to clean and wash and less to make dirty. You can't have a sink full of dishes if there isn't any dishes. <laughs> I'd be frustrated trying to get ready for school in the mornings as I was trying to find socks to wear for the day. One time I went to my mom and asked her what happened to all my socks and she said, you and your brother left your stuff all over the place so I threw them out. I didn't even know what to say in response to this. I was in elementary school. <laughs> It's not like I could buy replacements or do my own laundry. We didn't have a washer at our house, so my solution was to sneak into her room before school and borrow her socks. <laughs> my mom caught onto this and figured the best course of action was to buy herself more feminine socks in an effort to avoid me taking hers. <laughs> Unfortunately, this was not the deterrent she had hoped for. Owning things was complicated in this kind of environment. My mom knew that our possessions could be used for profit if needed. Uh, our home was simply too small to facilitate all of us. And there was no plans to move to a bigger place or to stop housing relatives all the time. So my books, movies, toys had no sentimental value. So she grew up, she grew up with so little that she figured we could survive without a lot. Some things like my VHS of the Power Rangers movie could be given to one of her friend's children, and that's fine because I didn't need it. It was a nice thing to sacrifice for other people and to not complain about it. She valued being useful to people. So the feud with my mom continued as I got older. I just was not like my older sisters who helped her when she needed somebody to be a translator or to fill out paperwork or to talk to authority figures. These are things that she struggled with, but whenever the idea was presented for her to try to learn things on her own, she would just reject it and say that she was not capable of those things. Things like improving her writing, her reading, or even simple tasks like working the TV remote. My mom would just say that she was not smart, that she only made it to the fourth grade, that she didn't speak English, and nothing that we did to try to explain how easy it was to convince her otherwise. She felt limited by what she was able to do because she had been a borona her whole life. And all of that self-doubt and insecurity rubbed off. In third grade, we had a project where we drew a picture and a short paragraph to show the progress in our writing for a back-to-school night. The assignment was pretty straightforward. Most of the other kids drew themselves or families or some kind of hobby they enjoyed. I drew a sad alien and a paragraph about his life on an empty planet, an early sign that I probably needed some help. Parents filled the classroom in my elementary school looking at the little exhibit. I pointed out my picture on the wall, and my mom noted that my handwriting was not as nice as some of the other children. I was failing as a boy. My mom thought that boys would just naturally know how to do boy things at some point. 
She saw other men who knew how to build things or work on cars. They were good at negotiating and smooth talking. I was a shy kid. I was turning into a borona because of her. I was getting bullied. I had no self-confidence. I didn't like sports and I wasn't loud or tough. I like to use my imagination. I like to sing and write. So what could we do? We had a backyard with grass and weeds and no real knowledge on how to manage it. We didn't own a lawnmower or a weed whacker. Those are tools that would have been deemed too difficult for my mom to learn how to use. So using her logic and resources, she decided that my brother and I would just cut it with a knife. And we had special backyard knives. We had a block in the kitchen with knives that seemed to have no use for my mom. We didn't eat steak, so the steak knives seemed like the perfect tool for cutting grass. My little brother and I would regularly spend time in the backyard with a knife, taking handfuls of weeds, sawing through it, and then stuffing it into a plastic bag. And then when the bags were full, we tossed them into the gray trash cans instead of the green ones. Why? Because the green cans were being used for extra storage. <laughs> or big things that my mom couldn't throw away all at once. So if we had a, something like an old couch that needed to be thrown out, my mom wouldn't think to drive it to the dump or call the city to schedule a pickup for a large item. Instead, she grabbed her tool of choice, a knife, and cut up the couch or Christmas tree or mattress and then slowly threw away pieces until it was all gone. <laughs> and so the obvious question here would be, why not scissors? <laughs> well, we didn't regularly need scissors, but there was always plenty of knives around, enough that we would usually have a little pile in the, in the yard waiting for use. The scissors we did have were for school, and those couldn't cut through weeds as easily, and if we had scissors laying around, my mom would just sell them. <laughs> it may also seem like this was a punishment, but doing yard work with a knife was a normal chore, like washing our clothes in the bathtub or crushing aluminum cans to sell at the junkyard. Totally normal chores that I assumed everyone did. I try to make the time go by in my imagination, sitting out in the dirt. I'd imagine action scenes like the ones I saw in action movies. Sometimes I would pretend that the knife was an action star fighting through waves of plant enemies. As I got older, I settled into the idea that my mom would I, and I would just never understand each other. I was into philosophy, science, and the arts, things that were not helpful for lawn maintenance. One time we were waiting in the car, and I asked her if she ever thought about how crazy it is that we live on a planet in space. I stared at her as I watched her process the question, hoping that maybe I tapped into something. But after a brief, a brief pause, she said, I never think about that. <laughs> and it just seemed so strange, because that's all I ever think about. <laughs> Despite some difficulties, my siblings and I always were very close. We would regularly assemble at my mom's house even after all of us had moved out. If any of us were ever visiting, we never knocked on the door or called ahead of time. Her home was open any time that we needed a place to go. We gathered together for the holidays, all crammed in the kitchen, eating dinner, standing around the kitchen counter, being so loud that when we, uh, being so loud that when my mom would complain that we were being too noisy. We did Easter egg hunts in the backyard for all the kids. If any of us had birthdays, it was tradition that we went to my mom's house for pizza and ice cream. Even though my mom could never keep track of the actual birth dates or ages we were turning, she was there, <laughs> napping on the couch as we all yelled over each other. 
In 2014, my wife and I moved out into our own home, into a two-bedroom down the street from where I grew up. When we moved in, my mother-in-law wanted to give us her old full-size piano that she had kept in storage for several years. I had been wanting to learn how to play, and the piano would be a great addition to a new home. So we told her we'd take it, and she managed to get some arrangements to have it dropped off later that night. When I went out in the morning, I saw this big, ugly piano dumped in our front yard. There were scratches on the cement from where the movers tried to roll it on broken wheels and scratched up the floor. My mother-in-law intended for this to be a gift, but this thing was peeling from the exterior. It was out of tune. It smelled dusty from being stored for so long. It was too heavy for us to get inside our home, so by the time we tried to get it inside, it had rained and got even more ruined. Now it looked like if a piano was a haunted pirate ship. (laughs) We called the local thrift store to see if they could come and take it, but they inspected it and decided that it was too damaged to resell it. And I needed to figure out a way to get rid of this thing. And this is when all the training that my mom taught me growing up (laughs) finally came into play. I pushed it over onto the front lawn of my house and began to break it apart piece by piece. And the rain had weakened it a bit, but this instrument was still very sturdy. Toppling it over did not cause the damage that I was hoping for. I began to break, the, break apart the exterior, but once I got inside, I realized how all these parts were connected. If I was going to create small pieces, I was going to have to remove the strings from the hammers and the metal frame. And I don't know what kind of tools are used for breaking apart a piano, so I used a hammer, some pliers, and my old friend, the knife. <laughs> I took some time, but I slowly uh, took the whole thing apart and disposed of the whole thing. I love the idea of taking something that seems way too big and breaking it down a little at a time. When I was young, I felt like a borona. I didn't have a place that I could get confidence and assurance that I could accomplish things. Now as an adult, my favorite thing is to have a lot of hobbies because learning new things feels like the superpower that my mom never knew that she had. She had to work her whole life, didn't have time for imagination. But she did a lot. She She was not as incapable as she thought. She grew up a little bit at a time, slowly getting rid of the parts that were holding her back. With the help of her kids, she began to grow and change, and she eventually solved the problem of her yard by getting rid of the grass and putting up artificial turf instead. (laughs) Although she still uses the occasional knife for cutting weeds. Like the piano, my marriage eventually fell away. When my wife and I separated, I saw my mom drive by as I was moving out of the home that we'd lived in for four years. She called out to me and saw that I had tears in my eyes. And my mom has never been great with words, but in that moment, she let me know that she was there for me and that her home was open whenever I needed it. mucho tiempo estudiando español y todavía no puedo no no pueda hablar con fluidez qué estoy haciendo mal i asked my spanish teacher fabiola wondering when i was going to get good at spanish <laughs> like really good 
I've been studying off and on since I was in middle school, and as a middle-aged adult, I can still only speak confidently to three-year-olds. Fabiola, a Colombian immigrant who has a degree in finance and now teaches Spanish part-time to adults, cleared her throat and looked skyward, searching for a way to explain my plight diplomatically. She said, has trabajado muy duro. I had worked really hard, and just like non-native English speakers, she said, puedes comunicar. I can make myself understood albeit haltingly and often with the assistance of pantomime. <laughs> she said, esto, this, is something to celebrate. I frowned, and she adopted the conciliatory tone you use with children when they want a cookie, and you remind them that dinner's almost ready. <laughs> Puedes mantener este nivel de español por el resto de tu vida. Sin problema. Fabiola was telling me that I could maintain this level of Spanish for the rest of my life and be happy. She said I could travel to Spanish-speaking countries, enjoy Spanish-language movies, and occasionally eavesdrop on strangers. If you want to speak more fluently, she said, you're going to have to work on it. Like, really work. But she said, I don't, I don't know that this, that achieving this level of mastery will bring you joy. That didn't make sense. And then she said something that totally bewildered me, and not just because I couldn't understand all the words. She said, working for something unattainable, inalcanzable, sometimes is more fun. Wait. I was supposed to be happy speaking mediocre Spanish after studying for decades? No entiendo. That can't be right. I paused to translate and then started throwing words out, Jackson Pollock style, hoping they conveyed meaning. No, no es bueno. Quiero hablar y participar en, en la lengua y la cultura de los hispano, hispano hablantes, pero de la manera correcta. I want to speak good, I, I mean, well, I said. Ojalá, she replied, which basically means, good luck with that. <laughs> My Spanish remains passable, maybe a notch above horrible, but I often get an upgrade for enthusiasm. To be honest, I know this is my fault. I learned the tricks of learning Spanish without learning Spanish a long time ago. I was in a summer Spanish language immersion program in San Miguel de Allende during college. I needed a foreign language to graduate, and since I'd been studying the Spanish ABCs, or ABCs, since I was 10, Espanol was the obvious choice. By the but time had not made the language easier to learn. Within a week of the six-week program, I was mentally exhausted. The relentless talking, thinking, and listening in Spanish gave me headaches. I did not graduate to that magical state of dreaming in Spanish. I did not experience that beautiful mind moment where words, conjugation, syntax, and meaning were magically conveyed to me without trying. I struggled. I was frustrated a lot, and I often just wanted my classmates to leave me alone. 
I wanted to zone out. My brain hurt. But we had a chatty group of wannabe Spanish speakers who were happy to participate in inane conversations about food. Me gusta tacos. <laughs> the weather. Hace mucho color hoy día. And boring, unnecessary descriptions of family and friends. Mi papá no trabajo. Él es jubilado. Él es muy amable, simpático y alto. But I learned early that most people wanted to practice their bad Spanish more than they wanted to listen to me speak bad Spanish. So I developed a strategy. Most of us couldn't ask proper open-ended questions like, what are your thoughts on free will versus self-determination? <laughs> Instead, we asked each other scintillating questions like, do you like it here? And did your parents have other children? Many of the questions elicited yes or no answers, which meant that you'd then have to quickly think of another question to ask in a long, excruciating linguistic game of tag you're it. Most people would loudly state, si or no, imitating a thicker than necessary accent. <laughs> but I found that single word responses were a dead giveaway that you hadn't learned shit. <laughs> Well-meaning listeners, especially teachers, wanted you to elaborate using complete sentences. So they would double down with more questions that were more complicated, trying to coax you to try harder. My flight or flight resist response was to flee, but it's difficult to escape a polite conversation in a language immersion program. I mean, that's the reason we all signed up. No escape. And I really wanted to learn Spanish. But I also hate being bad at things. I, I gravitate toward things that I do well, or at the very least, that I can do badly in private. Learning a language is something you have to do badly, out loud, in front of people to improve. There is no hiding your mistakes. And I'll be honest, no me gusta. So in San Miguel, I learned a trick that I later used in Barcelona, Sevilla, Santander, Malaga, and Costa Rica. Never use single word responses like si or no. Instead, I'd casually, confidently say things like, claro que si, tienes razón, por supuesto, estoy de acuerdo, que bien castón, creo que si, or, tiene sentido. These all roughly translate to, yeah, sure, <laughs> but with more gusto. I jotted them all down in a notebook and practiced before classes or meetings. If I was lucky, claro que si, could save me from conjugating dozens of verbs. <laughs> this is why, years later, I'm cursed with passable, if not appalling, Spanish. By now, you might be wondering, why do I care? And honestly, I don't know. At this point, Spanish is both comforting and agonizing. I've been learning it, forgetting it, and relearning it for so long that I don't know what I'd do if I stopped. I guess I have this idea that I should be the type of person who speaks a second language, and Spanish is the logical choice. 
I've tried to get serious over the years. Before 2020, I attended in-person conversation classes at local restaurants with groups of Spanish practicing strangers and a few kind and generous native Spanish speakers. I'm not a shy person, but at the meetups that are often held at cafes and bars, I steered clear of sitting next to native Spanish speakers. I didn't want to inflict my regressive verb conjugation skills on them. Supuntivo is my nemesis. <laughs> it is an emotional verb tense in Spanish that has no English equivalent. It is used to express desires, doubts, wishes, and possibilities. It's essential. It's also something I should know, but I actively and willfully avoid it because it's hard. Luckily, the other elementary school level adult Spanish language learners don't recognize when I completely screw it up, so I don't have to stress over it. But one day, my luck ran out, and I found myself next to Ernesto from Chile. He's one of the patient, kind-hearted native Spanish speakers who come to our meetups to socialize and help us practice. I groaned when the seat next to him was the only one available. I immediately resolved to dig deeper than claro que si. I really couldn't stomach another stilted conversation about jobs, hobbies, and siblings. Instead, I employed the limited vocabulary rolling around in mi cabeza to pose a question that I really wanted an answer to. Por qué? No es esto una tortura para ti. I was guessing at the word for torture because I remembered hearing it once on a telenovela, and I knew it was a cognate, but I wasn't sure if it was tortura or torture. Anyway, the complete phrase roughly translates to, why the hell would you put yourself through this? He didn't look like a masochist. Ernesto laughed in genuine surprise at the question because maybe he was also surprised that I knew the word for torture in Spanish. I could tell that he wasn't quite sure how to answer. He took a breath and spoke with a deliberate lack of speed. This was greatly appreciated. On average, native Spanish speakers talk 25% faster than native English speakers, cramming in an extra two to three syllables every second. That's too fast for me to decipher. To compensate, Ernesto over-enunciated and took lengthy pauses to allow me time to translate. He spoke as if I was a toddler, but a precocious one. <laughs> Ernesto said that people, especially Americans, willing to step out of their comfort zone and be bad at learning were a lot nicer to be around than those who were adamant that being born in an English-speaking country was some divine right that absolved them from learning anything about the cultures beyond our borders. I immediately thought of the two guys I overheard. They were not members of our group, but one shouted, dos porbesas, por favor, at the bartender, who was actually Filipino. Ernesto said that, in contrast, almost everyone at the Speaking Spanish Badly meetups had traveled outside the country, at least. Everyone had watched more than a few subtitled movies without grumbling about it. Everyone was happier and less uptight, too. 
that reminded me of an article about the fact that people who have had Botox rate their happiness as slightly higher than average. <laughs> Researchers have surmised that it's because those people now have physically have difficulty frowning. <laughs> less frowning, less unhappiness. Interesting, right? That made me think there's probably also a special euphoria that comes from being unable to speak intelligently about politics, philosophy, racial injustice, or the daily news. Instead, we were applauding each other for remembering the word for avocado. <laughs> Aguacate. It's a little tricky. And then when someone struggles to explain something, we all wait patiently with bated breath, no matter how benign, uninteresting, and downright stupid that statement would be if spoken in English. One person says in broken Spanish that they like to go swim, sometimes at the beach, in the water when the sun is almost gone, but during the day when there is still a pretty red and yellow light in the sky. Something they describe because they don't know the word for sunset. <laughs> and neither do most of us. In response, someone asks, also in bad Spanish, if the person is ever afraid to be in the water because and then they pause when they can't remember the next word, so they just start to hum. And everybody laughs, and everybody gets it. Not because the joke about Jaws is particularly funny, but because we are funny. We aren't embarrassed when people at surrounding tables look over with exasperation because it must also be a little torturous to overhear people speaking a foreign language loudly and badly. Kind of like listening to the kid next door practice the tuba. <laughs> Bystanders occasionally roll their eyes as if to say, just have that dumb conversation in English. What's the point? It's obvious that none of us are likely to become fluent in Spanish. But now I get it when Ernesto says that he comes for the people and the camaraderie, not the stimulating conversation. So do I. Don't get me wrong. Todavía quiero mejorar. Quiero hablar y entender español mejor. Claro que sí. But finally, it dawns on me that my teacher Fabiola was right. I don't need to wait to master the language to enjoy it. Gracias a todos. Oh, muy bien. <laughs> All right. Paper dolls and patron saints. Paper dolls. Mariane would draw the faces with big eyelashed eyes. I would draw the mid-drift tops, mini skirts and boots with tiny fold-over flaps. We listened to the Bee Gees and danced in her sister's platform shoes. Mariane would fake cry like a baby that sounded so real that it would bring my mom running to my room. 
Jody came to play, but she didn't want to draw or play dolls. She wanted to tell me about her brother, how they played steam engine in the basement, rolling on the ground until he stopped on top of her. She needed to learn how to cry to bring her mother running. But would her mother hear? Petro Coatl is who Celia Alvarez Munoz has named God of Petroleum. Petro Coatl is the God who my dad prayed to. We were those colonialists who came and raped and pillaged. We stole the artifacts of a culture that wasn't ours. Our family brought Inca relics home and displayed them like a poacher would display a lion's head. I say I'm innocent because I played paper dolls while he pillaged. But was I? I wanted the jaguar kitten he was going to bring home. But mom said no. She liked her curtains too much. Petro Coatl gave us gold and fancy cocktail parties in return for worshiping him. Petro Coatl heard our prayers. Double bubble, toil and trouble, oil and rubble, pro-America propaganda. God bless John Kennedy, they said, as they stuck their heads inside our Land Rover. The indigent ran behind us, reaching out. Why do they love our dead president? I asked my mom. Because JFK's their savior, she said. He gave them riches they never had. I wondered how poor they must have been if running barefoot behind us made them rich. America, the beautiful. We lived in a hotel, an old convent, even though I didn't believe in the father, the son, and Petro Coatl. I learned to cross myself for luck. During Carnival, Jody and Mariani and I would drop water balloons from the belfry on men in suits below us. We heard their curses over the bell chimes ringing in our ears. Border towns. My dad, Jaime, grew up in Del Rio, Texas. He only once told the story of his parents' divorce. His Catholic parents in a Catholic community, the shame, the humiliation, going to live with his grandmother who had been in mourning for 37 years, who wore nothing but long-sleeved black dresses. She wasn't a woman to be reckoned with. She owned a city block and donated it all to the church when she died. The priest more her family than her grandson. The men had power over her, but did they? I've seen pictures of great grandma Wallen and she walks down the wooden sidewalk of Del Rio with a mountain lion on a leash. If mom had let me have that jaguar kitten, would I have turned out like grandma Wallen? Maybe my bones know the story of a woman who was conflicted about powerful men. Street names. I found a Cochabamba street in Imperial Beach, San Diego. Cochabamba is the town in Bolivia where I lived, where I played paper dolls. 
Dad and Petroquatl moved us around the world. But Cochabamba is where I will return to die because it's where my heart is buried. Petroquatl was stumped in Bolivia because the oil wouldn't leave the earth for him. So we left. As an adult, I moved to San Diego because it reminded me of Latin America. But it was the America with street names like Actuario and Pantuflas, which means actuary street and house slipper court. <laughs> in Cochabamba, I told my mom, I didn't want to be an American. Americans were stuck up, I said. She said I didn't have a choice. I don't think she heard what I meant. Saints. As an adult, I live in America as an American. My mother was right. I don't have a choice. The alternative is to relinquish what I have, who I am. The alternative is to be free from choice. But what is choice? I am my father's daughter. I wore a long-sleeved black dress of shame when my husband left me for another woman. I'm not a Catholic, but to speed things up, I asked St. Joseph to help me sell the house. If there is a God, I thought, he would hear me, even if I don't believe. I ordered the St. Joseph kit online. It came with a little Ziploc baggie with one little plastic St. Joseph statue the size of a toy soldier. Was it really G.I. Joe who helped me sell my house? G.I. Joe, the war-scarred St. Joe? Inside the Ziploc baggie was also a tiny scroll, the prayer to sell my house. The instruction said to dig a hole and place St. Joe upside down facing the house. My house was already upside down, so should I bury the tiny soldier right side up? The tiny factory molded face gave no expression on what I was supposed to do with my life after I sold the house, nor after the divorce. I don't believe, I thought, as I dug the hole with my fingers. I don't believe in holy sacrosanct marriage. I don't believe in any God, and I definitely don't believe in magic saints. I buried the prayer with the plastic statue as per the instructions. St. Joe went head first, into the dirt, facing my upside-down house. A week later, the house sold. <laughs> Maybe it was G.I. Jane who heard me. Coca-Cola breaks. What makes a woman a woman? An X chromosome? A steam engine? A jaguar on a leash? Definitely not being American. Definitely not a god. No way, Jose, is it a man. I don't care what the country western songs say. We aren't paper dolls who wear dresses made of flimsy paper with little fold-over flaps. We drink Coca-Cola on our factory breaks. We thread the needle and sew men's shirts, long-sleeved black dresses and broken hearts. We light the matches and lead the marches that set the world on fire. We swim the Amazonian trenches of men and survive. I may not always be proud to be an American, but I am always proud to be a woman.
When I was 12 years old, nothing mattered more to my family than my bar mitzvah. It would be one of the only times that most of my relatives, uncles, aunts, cousins, and grandparents on both sides, ever gathered outside of Mexico City. A close second was my bris, you know, the snip snip. <laughs> you see, I'm a Mexican Jew, one of a few thousand. My parents moved from Mexico City to the United States in 1980 after getting married and never moved back. Among my first and second cousins, my brother and I are the only gringos. Everyone else is a chilango, born in Mexico City. Spanish is what we spoke at home. My mom always had telenovelas playing on the TV in the background as I did my Hebrew homework on the kitchen table. But we didn't speak typical Spanish. We spoke some Spanish with some Yiddish, Hebrew, and eventually English sprinkled throughout. For example, when I was a toddler, I had a tendency to grab my butt, and my mom would yell, yell in her own hybrid language, deja de tocar tus tujas. Every Friday night, we'd do the three traditional Jewish prayers for the Sabbath, one for the candles, one for the wine, and one for the braided bread known as challah. And then we'd rip into some pollo con mole with arroz y frijoles while still wearing our yarmulkes. <laughs> On the ensuing Saturday mornings, my dad would make us French toast with the leftover challah before we went to synagogue. And when we returned from praying, we would fire up the comal and make quesadillas to dip in homemade salsa. In the months leading up to my bar mitzvah, we started going to the synagogue near our home in San Diego regularly so that I could get used to the rituals and prayers. You see, my ability to properly recite the necessary Hebrew readings for the religious ceremony was critical to my success. I believed that my ability to read these scriptures flawlessly was the only way to gain approval from my family, friends, the girls in my class, and of course, God. But I grew up in a constant tug of war between my faith and religion and my curiosity for science. I grew up learning about the theory of evolution, the existence of dinosaur bones millions of years old, and that the universe began with a bang billions of years before that. All of these concepts are in direct conflict with Jewish religious texts. Yet I very much believed in a Jewish God, an omnipresent and ubiquitous God. The God I grew up with was not a cloud daddy, this God was everywhere and everything. And like this God, Jewish influence was pervasive in my life. I attended Jewish day schools, Jewish youth sports leagues, and Jewish summer camps. My best, my best friends were Jewish, other, often, often Mexican Jews. Often other Mexican Jews. Being a good Jew consumed my thoughts. Every night, I would sit in my bed, <laughs> lean my head on the wall as if it were a direct line to God and pray. I prayed to be forgiven for any transgression of the day, whatever I got wrong on homework or tests and maybe a fib. I prayed to ace my tests and for my crush to like me. I prayed for peace on earth, to score a goal in the upcoming soccer game, and to get an electric guitar. I prayed for the sun not to explode. And most of all, I prayed for my mom to let me wear a platinum iridescent shirt, bleach the tips of my hair, and lip sync Cisco's The Thong Song at my bar mitzvah party. <laughs> But on the flip side, I didn't know how to reconcile a growing record of historical and contemporary cruelty and horror. A list that contains slavery and sexual assault to the Holocaust and Hitler to apartheid and AIDS. Then there were the illogical and gruesome bits of the religious texts in the Torah, or what's commonly known as the Old Testament. 
all of these atrocities and inconsistencies made me question the existence of an all-powerful, merciful, and loving God. Why? Why would these things ever happen in that God's world? But nothing threw a wrench in my wheel of Jewish faith more than my relationship with my grandfather, Mordechai. Toto, as we called him, was the youngest of a dozen or so children. He was one of two members of his family to survive the Holocaust. Toto and one of his brothers arrived in Mexico City with essentially nothing. And the only reason he got out of Poland was by stealing his sister's ticket. He never saw or heard from his sister again and the majority of his family. We will never know exactly what happened to her. Presumably, she was left behind with her, with her fate in the hands of the invading Nazis. It's not something we've ever talked about. In fact, I don't even know her name. In Mexico City, Toto eventually met my grandmother, who also left Poland as a young girl. We called her Babi, which is short for the Eastern European term of endearment for grandmothers, Babushka. Toto established a successful cobbler, cobbler shop in Mexico City to support the family that he and Bobby would later have, three sons, the youngest of whom would become my father. Throughout my childhood, we went to Mexico City yearly to visit my grandparents, as well as my uncles, aunts, and cousins. Every time we flew in, the first stop was to get tacos al pastor, which were not exactly kosher. <laughs> we typically stayed at Toto's and Bobby's, the climax of which was Shabbat lunch a long Saturday afternoon ordeal where the entirety of my dad's family would cram into the living room and dining room at my grandparents' house to eat. A typical Mexican Jewish meal, matzo ball soup and enchiladas verdes. <laughs> it was at this table that perhaps the family dish most representative of my childhood was conceived, gefilte fish veracruzana. <laughs> Boiled ground fish shaped into a filet or patty covered in spicy tomato salsa. But even if, we speak a whole, if, even if we spent a whole week at my grandparents' house, it felt like Toto was nowhere to be seen. He was a living ghost, quiet and reclusive. He spent most of his time buried in his office moving between two typewriters, one with Latin script and the other Hebrew. It was as if he was holding on to life by writing a Spanish-Yiddish dictionary. And when he did appear, he was somewhere on the spectrum between disinterest and disdain. He was stoic and silent, he looked like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons, but completely devoid of any humor. I prayed for him, for him to be happy, to be absolved of his pain, but I had no indication of whether God was listening because there was never a change. Even on the day of my bar mitzvah, Toto was nowhere to be found. He never got on a plane that day, opting to stay at home in Mexico City. He did, however, have my grandma bring me his tefillin, this religious garb consists of small black boxes the size of dice that contain tiny scrolls with Hebrew prayers. These boxes attach to leather straps and are worn around the head and arm during morning and weekday prayer. While it made sense that Toto didn't show up because he seemed to always just be out of sight, I was unsure as to why he was giving me his tefillin. Was this a gesture of entrusting me with the continuing the family's Jewish heritage? Or was he just dumping it on me? Did he actually want this to be passed on? And why me? I wasn't the eldest of his grandsons, and we hardly spoke, so why me? Eventually, Toto's absence in my bar mitzvah fell into the background, and the long-awaited day went even better than I could have ever expected. During the ceremony in the synagogue, I was flawless, aside from the puberty-related voice changes. 
and for the party, I got to wear my Cisco-inspired shimmering outfit and slow dance. <laughs> and slow dance with my crush, crush with arms outstretched like two life-size Lego figures, war-rocking back and forth. The next morning, when I opened my eyes, it was as if I had put on brand new glasses. I excitedly jumped out of bed, cautiously put on the tefillin, and prayed in my room. It occurred to me as I finished the ritual that this might be the first of many thousands of mornings when I would wake up as a Jewish man and pray before doing anything else. But that didn't last long. That evening, a call came into my parents' house. My mom picked up the phone, and after figuring out who the call was for, called for my father. He proceeded to speak on the phone for a few minutes in muted Spanish. After hanging up the phone, he turned around with a look of vulnerability and tears in his eyes, something I had never seen before and have rarely seen since. After all, a Jewish man, sadness was a sign of fragility, an emotion to be swept under the rug. That morning, Toto, Mordechai Toto Grinstein was found dead with a noose around his neck. I'm not certain why he decided to take his life. He left no note. Was it his crippling depression? Had he lost faith in God? Or had the survivor's guilt of stealing his sister's ticket to life, leaving her to die, become too much to bear? While I don't have the answers to that, while I, what I do know is that my faith began to wither. After that day, I never wanted to pray again. I refused to ever don the tefillin Toto had given me. I couldn't reconcile how a forgiving and loving creator could let these atrocities happen in my family, let alone, let alone across millions more. Toto's death sparked a fire that turned the script of my life as a good, God-fearing Jewish boy into ash. I began to detach, detach from the Jewish life my parents had prescribed for me. I am not the head of a Jewish family. I am not married to a Jewish woman, and I do not have Jewish kids. In fact, I did the opposite. I married a Catholic girl and a defined act to be the first person in my family's history to marry a non-Jew. I would also become the first to divorce a non-Jew. <laughs> and as I grew older, I went on a mission to annul God, gorging through philosophy and science to find a way to disprove the divine. Whenever I enter a synagogue today, I'm torn apart by cynicism, fear, and resentment. Family gatherings, especially when religiously inclined, put me on the edge of a nervous breakdown. I try to avoid them at all costs, especially the bar mitzvahs. When I do show up, I avoid contact with my relatives because I'm ashamed of my reputation as the godless gringo, a wayward son. And with our Mexican machismo and Jewish jadedness, my family has never discussed any of this. We've never discussed what happened with Toto, nor have we ever talked about how it impacted our lives. In fact, some days I don't even believe Toto's suicide ever happened and wonder if I made up the whole story. But I know that isn't true. More than 20 years later, the tefillin are still in a closet are still there in a closet in my old room at my parents' house. They sit on a shelf gathering dust next to the Cisco-inspired shimmering silver shirt, both having only been worn by me just once. 
When I visit my parents' house, I always pass a four-sided rotating bookshelf holding hundreds of defunct CD albums and VHS tapes. And at the very top of it sits Toto's Hebrew typewriter. Every time I see this relic, I think of my family's Jewish lineage, which can be traced back to the 1700s. And every time, I can't help but think that maybe, just maybe, this branch of my family's genealogical tree has come to a halt in a twig that represents me. But there's a flicker of light inside that is guiding me to not shut out this intergenerational trauma. It, it tells me to let go of my pain and anger. It tells me that what I feel is nothing compared to what Toto must have endured. He was a person to me, just like me. I just got a much better lottery ticket to life than he did. I wish I could speak to him now, and though I can't, I can keep his voice and that of my family alive by resurrecting his Spanish Yiddish dictionary. After all these years of pushing away, I now, I now crave my family's traditions. Every time I go to Mexico City, I make sure to have a meal at Klein's or Klein's, a Mexican Tessin long frequented by my family. Even my grandparents used to go there. And I always get their specialty, huevos San Marcos, an open-faced bagel topped with kosher salami and two eggs that's smothered in salsa ranchera. <laughs> Part of me feels a calling to open up my own Mexican Jewish restaurant here in the US. And it is perhaps through matzo ball soup, enchiladas, and gefilte fish verde cruzana, I can carry on my family's Jewish-Mexican heritage in my own way. This poem is called Three Wise Men. I would like to write a poem that offers, I would like to write a poem with mighty themes that offers shattering insights into life, love, God, and the universe. But I slouch too much. Look how slumped I am. My shoulders are rolled forward and I'm as hunched as an ape. One day you'll get stuck like that, my mother would say. And I eat too many carbs. Have you ever tasted a scotch mallow egg? They are the perfect candy and come in packages of six. I'd eat a whole box right now. The point is, I'm not a fit vessel for wisdom. Like say, David White, John O'Donohue, Walt Whitman. How do those guys get so sure of themselves? I'm not sure of anything. Sometimes, I'm so muddled, I can't do the New York Times mini crossword. Not the real one, the mini. <laughs> My friends do it in under a minute. They send me texts that say, I solved the New York Times mini crossword in 58 seconds. <laughs> hey, that's great, I text back. <laughs> My phone rings. It's Aunt Bernice. She's 95, blind, more than half deaf, occasionally incontinent, unevenly demented, and reliant on me. Not that she lives with me. She's in a facility, a nice one, has her own apartment and everything. 
I moved her in after she fell and fractured her sacrum. Then she fell again and fractured her pelvis. Now she can't walk. She wants me to have lunch with her today. I'm so lonely it hurts, she says. I imagine she points to her chest, the place just under her sternum where she keeps her loneliness. Come, have a Reuben sandwich. They make great Reubens here. I can't. I'm busy, I say. I'm not lying. I'm writing this poem. I'll visit later in the afternoon, I say. I'll bring cookies. I'm not lying about this either. The cookies will be snickerdoodles. I hang up and Google Spanish guys naked. Do you think David White would Google Spanish guys naked? Yes. John O'Donohue? John O'Donohue? Walt Whitman totally would. But then he'd write, in the faces of God, I see men. No. <laughs> in the faces of men, I see God. I'm not looking at their faces. I'm not a fit vessel. I imagine myself pointing to my chest, the place just under my sternum, where I'd keep my wisdom if I had any, but it's crowded out by this tussle of needs, mine and my aunt's. Crowded out by the fact that I just decided it's more important for me to write this poem than for my aunt to have some companionship while she eats lunch. Now that she's blind and dotty, sharing a meal with her has become intensely intimate. Explain, helping her arthritic fingers find the last bit of burger, explaining for the fifth time that the wet pieces um, at the bottom of her plate are chunks of cantaloupe, bending the straw to her lips. It shames me to admit that these tasks repulse me. Worse, they enrage me. They make me want to throttle her. Right now, I'd rather stick a thumbtack in my eyeball than help Aunt B eat her lunch. I Google Irish guys naked. <laughs> I imagine myself pointing to my chest, the place just under my sternum, where I'd keep my wisdom if I had any, or my compassion if I had any of that, or mighty, any mighty themes I could muster, shattering insights, a sense of the rightness of things, that this braided suffering my aunt's and mine is somehow beautiful, and the world is better for it. David White, John O'Donohue, Walt Whitman, they'd find something pretty and necessary in all this. They'd write about it so gorgeously it would sound like a prayer, and they'd make it look a certain way too, placing each line, each word, just so. My poem is uneven chunks of text that look like directions for putting together a barbecue. <laughs> I don't have the confidence for mighty themes and staggering insights. I don't have the audacity. Those things give you a certain vantage point, and I'm not there. All I can do is tell you what it's like. This is what today is like. This poem is called The Hour. I set a timer on my phone for an hour, take a breath, walk in. You are where they always put you, in the recliner in your living room, 
There, you listen to TV, feel sunshine through the window, answer the phone if you hear it ring. You don't wear your hearing aids anymore, so the chances of this are 50-50. Your caregiver, it's Marina today, brushed your white hair flat against your scalp. It's neat, but doesn't hide the fact that you are almost bald. If you could see yourself, you'd be mortified. Your apartment is no longer tidy. Sweater, sweaters wrestle on the couch. Half-empty containers of cookies lay scattershot on the coffee table. Two tissues bunched at your feet, another in your lap. Honestly, you'd be mortified. What day is today, you ask? Monday, I answer. I didn't think you'd stop by today. I stop by every day, except Tuesdays and Thursdays. Well, how am I supposed to keep track? You're always gallivanting around. You smile. I smile too, but you don't see it. This is our greeting now. Only the day changes. I pull up a chair, take your hand. Your fingers are glass filaments in my palm that I am terrified of breaking. Rigid blue veins twine up your arm. I did not realize a person could be so frail and still be alive. How are you this afternoon, I ask. Just ducky, you answer. <laughs> this is how you respond when you are in a good mood. Well, a relatively good mood. The girl today must be new. Can you believe I'm still in my pajamas all day in my pajamas? You're not in your pajamas. I place your hand on your own knee. Feel that? You're wearing your tweed pants. I've never owned anything tweed in my life. <laughs> well, tweedish then. Anyway, they're pants, not pajamas. You run your thumb back and forth, scowl into your lap. Do you trust what your hand is telling you? Do you trust anything? What day is today, you ask? Monday, I answer. I look at my phone. Five minutes have passed. You touch your nostrils in a deeply private way that makes me cringe. You do it again and again. If you could see yourself, you'd be mortified. But your eyes have failed, and your withered brain can't hold an image. Maybe you're no longer capable of being mortified. Maybe this is a good thing. I offer a sip of water, anything to get your hand away from your nose. <laughs> what day is today, you ask? Monday, I answer. Another glance. Six minutes. No. Six minutes, 12 seconds. The hours I spend with you are a burden I don't carry with grace. But your caregivers tell me you are in a better mood after I visit, not so disoriented, fewer delusions. You eat better. I've never been so necessary in my life. This poem is called Flowers for Mary and Me. Hail Mary, full of grace, could you lend me some? My grace cupboards, bare. Actually, all my cupboards, empty. Woe is me, right? Trust me, Mary, I know how good I've got it, how fucking lucky I am. I'm aware of the long list of things I don't have to worry about. But sometimes, like this morning, my urgency deserts me. 
and I'm left with the weary pull of another day. So, I turn to you. Help me notice the cactuses I bought for $3 a piece at the hardware store a thousand years ago that have each grown to the size of a microwave oven. Their blooms are blazing white trumpets with a scent so fragile and delicate it's almost like being haunted by the ghost of a smell. Help me kindle some wonder so I can lift above my petty mood, my gripes, my wish that things were different, and by different, I mean easier. Here I go again, whining about this task I face, accompanying Aunt Bernice through the last months of her life. You wouldn't know much about that sort of thing, would you, Mary? I'm joking. Gallows humor. Hail Mary, full to the brim with grace. The Lord is with thee, and you can keep him. <laughs> Jesus is too moody. And I don't know what to make of his pious hocus-pocus, but you, I understand. Like you, I've sat inside another person's delusions, paranoia, and panic. Like you, I've offered the only things I could, love, loyalty, and a steady presence. Like you, I've waited, sometimes patiently, sometimes not, while they picked their scattered way toward an end anyone could see coming. Blessed art thou, Mary, and blessed is the fruit, the femboy, the sissy, the queer, the homo, the fairy, the faggot, the one who stepped up, me. I'm talking about me. I have a hunch that I am blessed by this strange and difficult love my aunt and I share. I suspect that I am lucky to witness this slow blossoming of death, vision, hearing, mobility, coherence, dignity, all falling open and away, leaving some stripped-down essence that's so fragile, so delicate, not yet dead, and she's already a ghost of herself, not yet dead, and she already haunts me. Are you haunted? By anyone, Mary? I wish you and I could have tea together. We could marvel at the plants I see from my window, of course, the $3 cactuses that I got at the hardware store, but also the shrub that's covered in tiny pink pinprick blooms that sometimes smell like soiled laundry and sometimes smell like decay. We could open the window, let the scent roll in. What is it today? Dirty laundry or death? We could try to find grace, humor, humility, and gratitude for our strange and difficult loves. We could offer each other love, loyalty, and a steady presence. We could pray for each other now and at the hour of our strange love's deaths. Amen. up there earlier. I'm going to pretend it was on purpose. I was in high school and worked at McDonald's, 
when a manager, Greg, asked me super casually to go to a party. We were both managers. I'd started when I was 15 and was now 17. Soon, I'd get my own apartment that I was saving for. My parents would co-sign while I was still a minor, as long as I continued to prove I was responsible. I was over living by their rules. All I recall about Greg, because he was so forgettable, uh, was he had a scraggly mustache, and he was 30. He said he just wanted a friend to go with for fancy food and free drinks at a resort in Phoenix. I thought Greg was kind of a sucker. He trusted a teenager not to binge on the open bar and embarrass him. So my first question was, I don't have to dress up, do I? I just want to wear Doc Martens and a skirt. He said, sure. I asked, what time should we meet there? He said we should go together because of the guest list and valet parking and things I was clueless about. So he'd drive. This made me slightly anxious. I always drove. I mean, for the two years I'd been driving. <laughs> My boyfriend didn't have a car, but I was a, a valet virgin. Like, you just hand over your keys? Like, after a speech about how the starter sticks and don't move the seat because the lever's broken. So reluctantly, I gave Greg my parents' address with explicit instructions. When he pulled up in his SUV, I ran out before anyone saw uh, because I didn't want questions about the old dude. Already, Greg was at the door. My internal alarms went off. First, seeing him outside of our work uniform, he was clearly a dork. <laughs> Worse, he was holding a gift bag like it was my birthday. I'd never been on a real date, unless you count dinner where my boyfriend's friend gave us free food and then breaking into a closed park. I knew gifts mean it's a date. I didn't want it. Open it, he said, thrusting it into my hands. I started down the driveway, rushing us away from my parents' door. They disliked my unemployed boyfriend. But even though Greg was educated and employed, they'd be concerned about this 30-year-old. Greg held my shoulder, which made me recoil, and insisted I open it now. Treating it like the box of pain in Dune, <laughs> I reached inside. It was a red rose, which was too sappy. Thanks, I said, headed for his car. He said, wait, there's more in the bag. Also inside was a card for going with a work friend on a not date, a flowery card which was also too sappy. He'd written a bad joke. Sorry, it's only one single rose. Its friends escaped in the fields. 
Only then did he let me in his car, and I saw why he gave me one rose and the card first. On the seat was a dozen red roses, which I'd never received before, not even from my boyfriend, because he knew me. So when he invited me to prom, he had roses painted black for me, which was my idea of romance. Greg even brought water for them to hammer home that he was an adult man who came prepared and was unlike my teenage boyfriend. I actually do appreciate that, but at the time, too dad-like. As we drove, I felt lightheaded and helpless, thinking he planned this, all of this, Oh, gross. I was too trusting. And now I doubted Greg's intentions, our friendship, everything about him. I'd agreed to come because at work we had smart conversations and he seemed harmless. And I never turned down a party. But I was also too nice. Like, I couldn't say no. As an adult and a parent, I say no constantly, without explanation even. But it took a lot of practice. Panic rose. What else had Greg lied about? As we drove in the dark through the desert to a place I'd never been, I wondered if this was even the way there. Where were we really going? Was there even a party? My parents didn't know who I was with because I was super independent and they didn't expect me till midnight. There was no way to tell a friend this was before cell phones. Suddenly, an oasis appeared, a lit up swanky resort, and I breathed a sigh of relief. So besides being a night manager, Greg had a real career too. At his day job, he was an engineer who worked on computer circuits. I guess he was a workaholic like I was and liked extra money. We were both saving up for housing and newer cars and I'd get roped into extra shifts that I didn't want because too nice. His tech company had gone all out for this Christmas party. A photographer took photos as we exited the car, like we were a misfit version of Leonardo DiCaprio and whichever model he's dating this time. (laughs) Everyone was in formal attire. A photographer was posing people on a set and selling the packages like this was a rich people's prom. I was uncomfortably underdressed in a thin shirt over a tank top, a hoodie, and worn down blue docks my friend had outgrown. Greg wore a zigzagged sweater, sort of like Charlie Brown, and tennis shoes, khakis, and a pager on his belt. (laughs) And no, it wasn't cool even then. I gotta say, when I said I wasn't dressing up, he at least followed my lead. The photographer, who I tried to avoid, but Greg made a beeline for, had us hold each other's arms like we were 
cradling a baby that we don't want. He bought the package. And I saved it. <laughs> I have since learned that for me, there must be consent that is both informed and explicit. He did not ask me on a date, even if he had, and I dodged the question. A non-answer is a no. A maybe is a no. A yes that's unenthusiastic or based on trickery, also a no. I live by this now. At 17, I was not conscious of the dynamics of an office party, much less one for engineers. The all-male workers circled up together. Their wives gathered to talk about them. I ended up in the dreaded wife circle. They wore sequined gowns and what I assume were designer shoes, it wasn't my thing, while I stood out awkwardly in my threadbare hoodie. The wives tried to include me by making small talk about Greg but even simple questions about his job and where he lived, I couldn't answer. A woman asked, a little suspiciously, how long we'd been married. I started laughing hysterically because I laugh when I'm nervous. I cried, oh no, <laughs> we're not married. We're both managers together at McDonald's. That's when I realized they didn't know about his second job. I said, I couldn't marry anyway. <laughs> she didn't get it, so I added, I'm in high school. <laughs> no one else was laughing. And that's when I saw the absolute horror on that woman's face and that it was matched by every single woman. I realized I had said too much and not said it the right way. Why I was blaming myself when Greg had brought a high schooler as his date, I don't know. But it's strange that while I tried to act older and more mature, He'd somehow made me want to tell the world how young I was. I tried to smooth it over, babbling, Greg just needed a friend, fancy food, and free drinks. With the drink in hand, I remembered I had just told them I legally <laughs> couldn't drink and should just shut up. On the ride home, I laughingly relayed this conversation to Greg, who didn't comment on it, but probably didn't think it was funny. I wonder what the fallout was at his job with it being the target of office gossip so icky and maybe at risk of being fired. 
After I told my boyfriend, who'd worked with Greg at McDonald's briefly, he left that dude. He didn't feel threatened at all and felt sorry for me and Greg because Greg was a dweeb. And after that, I ignored Greg and didn't see him outside of work again until I turned 18. He had quit our job and had to talk to me, not at work. Suspecting what this was about, I let him come to my new apartment but did not invite him in. So standing in the courtyard, he professed his feelings for me. This was despite my boyfriend, who I told him was waiting inside uh, because I insisted on handling this myself. It was almost comical if I weren't so annoyed that he was still trying. Greg told me the first time we met was sort of like love at first sight. I had no recollection. According to him, he was filling in at my restaurant. When he saw me, his mind went blank. He forgot what he needed to say, and he slinked away like a fool. After asking around, he learned I was only 16. He resolved never to talk to me. Later, he was transferred to my location and panicked because he knew he shouldn't be around me. His feelings were so strong that he wouldn't have self-control. The thing is, Greg did seek me out. Outside my apartment, Greg ducked his head and said he was ashamed to admit it, but I was his Lolita. And he paused to let that sink in. It didn't matter, I didn't get the reference. What did I know about Russian novelists? But it is about men sexualizing and being tempted by girls. How inappropriate this all was has become clearer to me in recent years. After work, Greg used to email me, telling me to go look at the full moon. And I'd say, oh, cool. After he saw my dismissive reactions to him and met my boyfriend and I snubbed him, that creeper still pursued me and I'm finally angry about it. In junior high, my parents told me, boys will want to date you, even older ones. It might be flattering, but think, if you're 14, why would a 20-year-old be courting you? He can't get a girlfriend his own age. There's something wrong with him. Yet I thought Greg's behavior wasn't that bad. We were both managers. I wasn't his subordinate. He didn't befriend other girls, so he wasn't a serial predator. Somehow that's better. I was so set on proving I could take care of myself that I dismissed that he was preying on a teenager and I had been naive in letting him be my friend. Thankfully, he didn't coach me or groom me, or if he was trying to, he was really bad at it. <laughs> to this day, that party for engineers was my fanciest date ever. But my enthusiastic consent goes toward exciting dates instead. 
like cosplay events or music fests. Who needs staged photo packages when you can have candidates with an eagerly consenting partner? Thank you. Dear Manny, of all the stories we imagined together, the one I love the most was sneaking out into the woods. That's the one where we still live at home, where we're in high school, where we're friends from the street, and once it's lights out, I summon you by tossing pebbles at your window, where we embark on an after-hours rendezvous into the woods, where we do what we've always done, eat Snickers, smoke ciggies, stand around in oversized flannels, complain about the piano lessons forced upon us, kick a pile of leaves, sneak the occasional glance. But none of this ever happened. We didn't grow up together. I'm from California, you're from Minnesota. We met just a few years ago in our 40s, work in separate industries. We've met none of each other's inner circle, except for my friend Nick during a meditation class who would later tell me, don't remember anything Manny talked about, but wow, is he easy on the eyes. We were each other's little secret. So we gave ourselves an origin story, that we were just two kids wandering in the woods. We have no history. We have yet to have a future. We have just now. We are safe here, to our relief. We are safe from ourselves. Why this place with you? I think... Um, it's a fantasy of possibility, a world of no seasons and all seasons at once, the period before the end of childhood, before we met, before other people, before we got lost in responsibilities and ambition, before going off to college, before our first experiences of love and sex, before, before, and before all that would come to be. Spring, Trilogy Sanctuary, a hippie spot, La Jolla, I can imagine what you saw when we first met. You must have been greeted with eyes that were at once full of joy and nerves, but also hope. And that was the part that made you look away, the hope. I said, I'm actually close friends with most of my exes. How about you? You said, most of my exes go through a period of hating me. OK, and after, I asked. <laughs> I'll text them on their birthday. You said. Looking head-on felt dangerous. We preferred instead to look in the same direction, at the sea lions on the shore forming voluptuous figures in the style of Renaissance paintings, at the seagulls circling the sky. I thought the urge to preen the nest of black hair on your head. Fast forward. You told me, I'm not ready for a relationship, I'm, uh, at least not a conventional one. Then we'll never work, I said. I'm looking for an all-options-on-the-table relationship, and I'll keep searching until I find it. Then I won't ask for anything, you replied. Well then, I added, I think I'd like to stop over with you for a little while. Well, I'd like to have you here, you said. Anything else I should know? I move a lot for work. Then I'll be the first one to leave, I said. The next day, morning, you text. Are we already waking up next to each other, I typed. Just saying hi, you text. Yet you repeated this hundreds of times thereafter, 
Night via text, then soon in person, in bed, morning, and a kiss on the neck. We became the people we had to have contact with. Not every day, but most days. The first person and the last person. The woods. On one of the, our after-hours outings, we solidify our, our bond in blood following the tradition of Gothic romances. We're freezing. An offset guitar picks at major and minor triads. As two bookish Asian and Indian kids, we may be AP bio on the outside, but inside, we are alternative to the core. <laughs> you bring an exacto knife from home. As for me, I sneak out mini antiseptic wipes and band-aids in a baby angel print. Standing there, we agree to take turns carving each other's initials into our palms. The temperature drops. We need to do this quickly before we chicken out. Give me your hand, you say. Your words release puffs into the night air. And when I turned my palms up under the light of the moon, I saw that your initials were already there. Just turn them over, see? An M and an M on each hand, the man and the myth. In your own strange way, you had already imprinted on me. Summer, Fletcher's Cove, Solana Beach. I brought you to my favorite lookout spot so we can pretend to rain over the ocean. I just want to understand what happened with her, Manny. Your eyes shifted off frame. I was really unhappy, you began to say. Then we moved in together. I don't think I can talk about this right now. Okay, I'm sorry, let's just take in the view. Later, you say you didn't want me to see you cry, not this early on, but I already knew this, and you knew, you knew that I knew this. Our telepathy sending a flurry of signals. Increasingly, we had to remind ourselves, this is temporary. Rain in our relationship, I mean, situationship. And sometimes it was warship, but always, always a friendship. The woods. One night we get caught in a rainstorm and run for the only structure around, a freestanding info board with warnings on the possible risks ahead, what to do if you ingest poisoned berries or see a coyote. The shallow overhang requires us to huddle, and we do, closer than ever. Our hair is wet and matted across our foreheads. I watch you knit your brows, thinking of our parents at home separately, checking in and finding empty beds. From your back pocket, you fish out the one unharmed cigarette, which I press between my lips. You give me a light, encasing the little flame with your hand, cupping my cheek with your hand. Do you want me to move this, you ask? No, I don't. Is this okay, you ask? Yes, it's okay, I tell you. Eventually, the sky's clear, and guided by a rebel moon, we make our way back home, back through our windows and back under the blankets. We don't get caught after all. We don't even catch a cold the next morning. But I know a shift has taken place, and so do you. It happens in the moments falling when your hand dropped from my cheek down to my waist, and we forget where we are. Something at the edge of the woods that had been waiting pierces the terrain and rolls through like fog. Gone are the drums and guitar. Gone is music, and it's placed now a metronome leaving us on edge, the constant tick of, now what? What about after? And after that? What about tomorrow, next year? That's how it happens. Once we introduce love, time rushes through. And along with that, our past and our uncertain future, everything we wanted to forsake, 
Time had finally come for us. Autumn, Sycamore Den, a neighborhood joint, Normal Heights. After my repeated request to meet, you agreed to come here. The room was awash in amber lighting. I swiveled over in the bar stool and demanded, what's going on? Recap of the past year, more, enough, let's, can't, now, don't know, when, later maybe. You redirected me to the hook and ring game. I'll show you how to play this. Clearly, the premise was to make do with very little. I wanted to slap you across the face. I wanted to pour beer over your head. I wanted to take this bar fight out on the streets and into a screaming match, and then into an arm wrestle, and then into a tango, where we end up in a devastating embrace. I wanted everything except to walk away. After that evening, radio silence, a week later, I heard from you. You've been promoted. It's the big one. Out of state. We won't survive the distance. We don't need to say this part out loud. Winter. Curiosity, an Indian restaurant in South Park. We had your farewell dinner at a place that reminded me of you, will always remind me of you. Everything was embellished in pink and gold, garlands of silk tassel draped from the ceiling. We barely touch when we go in for a half-hug greeting, smiled meekly as if role-playing mature, well-adjusted adults. The waiter remarked how good we looked together, like a United Colors of Benetton ad. <laughs> a hopeful feeling rose inside me before I had to shoot it in the face at point-blank. Maybe we both contemplated an Irish goodbye where we would flee the impending moment. There's three stories you tell ourselves. One, you love me, but I don't love you, at least not in that way. Two, I love you, but you don't love me because you're a damn fool. And three, we love each other. We don't know how to be together. After dinner, we walked around the neighborhood admiring the bungalows with wide open porches. We pointed out the gardens overgrown with wild flowers. It was getting late, 9.15, then 9.40. We used to renegotiate what constituted late so we could tell each other one more thing. Not tonight. Talking would give us away. It was too late. We had reached my car. I fumbled for the keys. On so many occasions after that night, I let myself wonder, like, what if? What if we had kept walking? Would the memories flood back? What if you had stopped on the sidewalk to tell me what I wanted to hear? Wait, there's a fourth story we didn't consider. What's that, I ask? With an unmistakable glint in your eyes, you grab my hand and pull me on a downward slope. Crazed by the moonlight, we peel off our jackets, ditch them in the nearest bush, then pick up speed. And how can it be that the red-hot chili peppers hit under the bridge is blasting from the street lamps? We rush through gates, nearly trip on a garden hose at some poor lady's property. Oh, shit! Our hands slip a bit, but I tighten my hold, fingernails deep digging in. I'm leading us now, my hair whipping around. We run like kids after a prank gone wrong. We passed it playground in that liquor store where we had Thai food one time. Oh God, that face of yours, that face when you're sleeping. Might as well say it now. Toss it to the wind. I love you. Over my shoulder, you squeeze my hand to tell me forever. 
then past skate parks, past the meds near my bed and the tumbler of whiskey to wash it down near yours, past football fields and cemeteries, past city lights, past state borders, past racial lines, past the boundaries of you and me. We obliterate that distance by feet, then inches, then by a hair, a single dancing strand of hair, until we crash into the woods, tumble to the ground, our bodies coated with dirt and insects. In the end, we are laying side by side with our faces flattened against the damp leaves. A canopy of trees loom over us, hiding us from the outside. We look across. Then I take my thumb and wipe away your tears, and you wipe away mine. Dang. All of those stories and poems were uh, so beautiful, right? I am so glad (laughs) that we did this showcase and so proud of our writer-performers. Like I said, they they not only have uh, writing coaches, they have performance coaches, and so they put so much effort into getting up here. So uh, I just thank you all so much. Thank you, performers. Thank you, audience. One more time, I wanna tell you the names of our writer-performers tonight. We started with David Zafra, then Deborah Bass, Amy Wallen, Jonathan Grinstein, Frank DiPalermo, Jay Carroll, and Taylor No. Thank you all so much. Thanks for coming out tonight. Uh, Again, please check us out, So Say We All. We're at sosayweallonline.com. You too can be in a showcase maybe next month. So uh, yeah, thank you all so much for coming. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to see the videos, go check out our YouTube channel. It's So Say We All Online. Make sure you subscribe to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast if you haven't already. It does help the machines favor us. And if you want to learn more about So Say We All, including how to get in touch, upcoming live shows that you can be a part of, sign up for our newsletter and more, pop over to our website. That's so say we all online.com. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudnell. Jen Corley is our program director, who you heard hosting today's show. Jake Arkey is our Los Angeles guy. Brent Hanafy is social media manager, and our original music is provided by the haunting Kurt Conan of AMFM Music. Our outro music, Blue Little, is by 1032. And the guy who keeps our regular Vamp Showcase down, Joe Hudak. Support is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, the Conrad Prebis Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. We'd love to have you as one of those members. Please just go on over to sosayweallonline.com slash support and sign up at any level of monthly giving to keep our lights on. Thanks for listening, and maybe next time the story we hear will be yours. Yeah.